Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to contemplating how God's preached Word impacts every moment of our lives. This sermon was preached at Holy Cross in Kearney, Nebraska by Pastor John Rasmussen. morning. Grace, mercy, and peace be to each and every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you to take out your Bible and open up to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to take a little pit stop in the Old Testament uh, before we move on to our summer sermon series. Uh, so Isaiah chapter 6, that's on page 571. So go ahead and grab a Bible and open up. We're going to, for the most part, walk through these eight verses verse by verse. While you're flipping there, I'll give you a little preview of what we're doing this summer. Uh, We're planning on preaching through a good portion of Mark's gospel. Uh, We'll be starting in chapter 3. That's kind of where our lectionary readings uh, pick up. And uh, so if you're thinking, you know, I'd really like to start reading the Bible more, uh, that's kind of low-hanging fruit, right? Just start reading Mark, and we'll be talking about it all summer. So uh, feel free to start that if it's not in your daily rhythm of reading the Scriptures. Uh, But today we're going to take a look at Isaiah chapter 6. A few years ago, I read an article in The Atlantic by a man named Jonathan Rauch, and he wrote this article titled, Let It Be. And in the article, uh, Rauch says that he's an atheist. He doesn't really believe in God, uh, but he doesn't prefer to be called an atheist. Uh, rather, he prefers to be called an apotheist. Anybody heard that term before? Apotheist or apotheism? I hadn't heard it either uh, until a few years ago. And so what he means by apotheism is this, is that he, it's not so much he doesn't believe in God, it's the fact that he doesn't really care. Uh, he says, you know, I've just kind of moved beyond that. It's not really an interest to me. It just doesn't really move me. Uh, I just don't even really care. Uh, Now, he goes on to to say that most atheists are not apotheists, Uh, and by apotheist, you can see the the connection there between apotheism and the word apathy, right? Apathy means I'm not really moved, I don't care, I'm not enthusiastic, doesn't deserve my time, Uh, don't get too excited about it. Uh, He said that most atheists are not apotheists because most atheists are not apathetic about God. You've met somebody like this before, right? You know, they just have an axe to grind against God and religion, Uh, maybe because they had a bad experience in the church or something, but uh, they're really interested in the question of God. They're talking about God all the time, just saying they don't believe in Him, which maybe suggests something, uh, that preoccupation. Maybe they're protesting a little too much. Uh, But uh, he says that, uh, so atheism is much different than apotheism because apotheism just doesn't really care. But the most interesting thing he argues in this article is that most apotheists are actually church people. That most people who are kind of apathetic to the question of God are actually religious people who attend church. Now this seems a little bit counterintuitive, right? But he said that, you know, when it comes down to it, uh, a lot of people, even if they say God's important to me, I I really care about what I believe, when it comes down to the practical level of how we speak and live our lives every other day of the week, 
it kind of betrays that we're somewhat apathetic. We kind of have a lowest common denominator, laissez-faire approach to the particulars of what we believe uh, or what other people believe. I mean, do you know what your neighbors believe? And if you know what your neighbors believe, does it bother you? Does it move you at all? Do you desire them to believe the same thing you believe? Uh, so apatheism is this problem, being apathetic about God. Now, I'm going to go ahead and just say that I struggle with this. Yeah, I'm a pastor. It's my professional thing I do. But I would say one of the biggest problems I struggle with as a Christian is this kind of ingrained uh, natural apathy towards God. I think that's the big human problem. You know, and, and, and it's kind of like this. I want God to be a part of my life. Definitely. I want God to comfort me in difficult times. I want Him to give me a, a hope and a future. I want a plan for my life. I want God to be involved, especially when I have a problem. But I don't want God to be too involved in my life so that He makes me uncomfortable or asks for anything too costly. You feel this, right? Isn't it true that we all kind of have that little corner of our life that we say, you know, God, you can have everything else, but you can't have this. I just kind of want you to leave me alone sometimes, God. I mean, don't spend all your time with me. We're all in the same boat, right? We feel that. Yeah. We've all got those corners of our life that we just don't really want God to mess with. Uh, that's apatheism. We're being apathetic, complacent about the rule and the reign of God in our life. Now, as we look at our text today, I want you to check out these first couple words here. So, Isaiah 6, verse 1. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, Isaiah is giving us some context here of what's really going on. So, if you go back and you read about King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, maybe do that after lunch today, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we learn that Uzziah was one of the most successful kings in Judah's history. Uh, really, the, the, the second most successful next to Solomon. Uh, he had brought back a lot of prosperity and, and popularity and, and success to Judah. They, he really got them back on the map as, as a nation again and, and, and gave them strong uh, military borders and just all these successes, prosperity, abundance. But then we read about Uzziah that in the end of his reign, he became prideful and complacent and he forgot about God. And so that's really the context in which Isaiah's preaching in the year that King Uzziah died. In fact, later in Isaiah's uh, prophetic words in chapter 29, verse 13 of his book, this is the diagnosis that Isaiah is going to give. He's going to say this, this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, Isaiah is saying, these people are very religious, but their hearts are apathetic about God. Do you see that? But as we take a look at the text today, I, I'm convinced that perhaps Isaiah had the same apathy struggle, that he was apathetic to some degree about God and His reality. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. 
Isaiah has this experience that he struggles to even explain. He has this experience uh, with the holiness of God that will end up wrecking him, rousing him out of his complacency. Now, we don't really know exactly when Isaiah experienced this vision. Some scholars think that Isaiah had this vision uh, right here in chapter 6, so that means that he preached. We get five chapters of Isaiah's pretty fiery preaching, and then all of a sudden Isaiah the preacher gets preached to, right? He experiences God, and it wrecks him, and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, right? Or it may be that this is Isaiah's initial call into ministry, that, you know, he experiences this Uh, before any of Isaiah's written, but then he just places it right here for literary and stylistic purposes. Scholars make a living arguing about these things. We're not going to go too deep into it, uh, but it is interesting to note. So let's take a look at this vision that Isaiah has. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train, or the hem of His robe, filled the temple. Now, something interesting is going on here. In in, in John's gospel, first chapter, John says straight up, nobody's ever seen God, but God has been revealed to us in Jesus. Uh, So so what's going on here? Because Isaiah says that he saw God. Well, what Scripture's saying is that nobody's ever seen God like straight up, full on, like looking at the sun directly. Nobody's seen God, uh, but people have experiences of getting a glimpse of God. And typically when that happens, people say, I'm going to die. A couple examples in the Old Testament, sometimes God mediates His presence through something physical, earthly, like remember Moses and the burning bush? Uh, God speaks to him through this, this physical object uh, that's called a theophany uh, when God does that. Other times, God mediates his presence through uh, what seems to be people. Uh, so remember Abraham, uh, he gets the three visitors that come to him announcing uh, the, uh, the birth of Isaac. Uh, we get God uh, descending upon uh, the mountain of Sinai with, uh, with fire and smoke, Right? Uh, but whenever God is, is seen, whenever He's given just like He gives a slight glimpse of His glory, typically what people do is they will not describe God Himself because nobody can see God and live, but rather they describe what's around God, what's in the surroundings. We get that in Exodus chapter 24, for example. Uh, but here we kind of see the same thing. God's not de- uh, God is not described as He is, but rather Isaiah talks about the train of his robe, the hem of his robe, just the bottom part of his garment filling the temple. And then in verse 2, Isaiah goes on not to describe God, but to describe these otherworldly creatures. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. This word seraphim is an interesting word in Hebrew. We're not exactly sure what it means. Uh, I think the best meaning of the word is fiery. This is a fiery, glowing being uh, that is in God's presence. And notice that its anatomy is set up for B 
being in the presence of God. It has uh, the two wings it covers its eyes with. This, this bright being is not able to handle the brightness of God. So just like you and I have eyelids, right? Uh, he's covering his eyes and then also cover, covering his feet, which is a, is a sign of respect for the holiness and the presence of God. Now, what I want you to see is that these seraphim, whatever in the world they are, they are not the least apathetic about God. Because look what they're doing. Verse 3, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. They're not apathetic at all. They're just ravished by God's holiness. They're smitten by God. They're just worshiping Him continually, constantly, much like we see in the book of Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That threefold repetition of the word holy in Hebrew, kadosh, 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 that really means uh, that God is holy, multiplied by holy, multiplied by holy. It's like the strongest way you can say something in Hebrew is to say it three times, that God is utterly other, utterly holy, utterly transcendent, utterly beyond any category that you have. That's God. And then they go on to rejoice in His glory. They say, the whole earth is full of His glory. That word glory in Hebrew has the idea of heaviness, of weightiness, of importance. And so basically they're saying that this whole creation, everything that you see, everything you experience in this physical created world is beaming with God's glory. It's declaring that God is good and that God is the center of everything. And really, there's a call here for you and me to give to God unbroken praise, right? The very purpose for you and I existing and having breath in our lungs is that we might declare God's glory and, be, and just be smitten by how beautiful and how good He is. Man, sometimes we don't even sing in church, right? We're like, I don't like that song. It's not about you though, right? It's about God about His glory. The whole earth is full of His glory. Verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So this is a temple scene. Whether Isaiah had this vision as he was in the temple or he is just experiencing a vision of the temple somewhere else, we don't really know. The text doesn't say, but the vision itself is taking place within the temple. Now, what's Isaiah doing right now? Is Isaiah joining in the song, holy, holy, holy? What's he doing? No, he's not. He's not apathetic about the question of God. He's actually terrified. Look with me at verse 5. The prophet says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah has had this experience, and, and, and as far as he cons- is concerned, he's done. He's toast. He's a goner. He's like, okay, I think I'm going to die now. You see, Isaiah's sin collides with God's holiness, and God's holiness doesn't move. Isaiah is utterly wrecked 
in the presence of a holy God. What I want to ask you, what I want to impress upon your heart today is this, is, is have you been wrecked by God's holiness? Have you ever stood before God and, and, and said, woe is me. I'm a man, I'm a woman of unclean lips, of unclean heart. Have you ever been there? I hope you have, because you can't know the grace and the mercy of God unless you've been in that place. Because how else would you know that you need it? This is why we stand before God in every worship service and first say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips. A woman of unclean lips. Flip with me briefly to Acts chapter 2. Keep a hand in Isaiah. We're going to go back there. But go to Acts chapter 2, our New Testament reading for today. That's on page 910, I believe, in the Pew Bibles, Acts chapter 2. And this is really the, the continuation of the story of Pentecost. And Peter is, is preaching a sermon, which I'm sure was a lot longer than the chapter that we get here. But we get the highlights of the sermon, and we get the punchline in verse 36. So imagine that you're standing there that day, and, and on the day of Pentecost, and Peter is preaching, and the punchline of the sermon is this, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Ugh. We experience Christ is risen as good news, but the crowds that day on the first Pentecost didn't hear it as good news. They heard it as, woe is me. We did that. And they fully expected, I believe, to come under God's wrath and God's judgment. Look what they say now in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's a very vivid image. You can almost feel that. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Woe is me, right? But I want you to see that these men had to be cut to the heart first before they could receive the gospel. They had to be diagnosed as terminal before they received the cure. And it's the same for you and me that we must first be wrecked by the holiness of God, that the house of cards that we build that is our own righteousness and goodness just needs to be crushed before we can come before God and receive His mercy. We must be diagnosed by God's holiness as sinners before we can be healed, restored, and forgiven. We must first acknowledge and agree with God's diagnosis of us and not try to cut any corners. But I want you to see something here. Yes, Isaiah, let's go back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, page 571. Isaiah has been wrecked by the holiness of God. Isaiah is like a glass, a fragile glass that's about to tip over the side of the counter and shatter into a thousand pieces forever. Except that God reaches out and shows grace that's unasked for, unearned, and unexpected. Look with me at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal 
that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Those words saved Isaiah's life. God's grace intervened and forgave him. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2 again, page 710, right? I think that was the page. Or 910, sorry. It's the same thing here with uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 36. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And look at, look what Peter says. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. 3,000 people that day were about to topple over the edge, but God grabbed them and gave them His mercy. They were once enemies, but now they became beloved children. Do you see the grace of God at work here? Now, go back to Isaiah chapter 6. I want you to see this, that the solution to our apathy is God's grace. You see, God's holiness can rouse you out of your apathy so you wake up and realize, oh my gosh, I've been treating God too lightly. I've been apathetic. But it's only the grace of God in Jesus Christ that can heal your apathy. And the grace of God that heals your apathy is this, is that God is not the least apathetic about you. God is not apathetic about any person here in this room. We read it in our gospel reading, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. There's no apathy in that, right? That God gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to wreck or ruin or destroy or condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. God is not apathetic about you and your well-being in the least. In our case, there's no coal that's pressed upon our lips, but there is the nails driven into the hands and into the feet. And it's because of those nails driven into the hands and the feet that we have a God who now presses upon your lips the very body and blood of Christ. Come back next week for that. A God who presses upon your heart the very words, your sins are forgiven. You see it? How can there any be, be any apathy about a God who has loved us that deeply to those depths? That is the only solution to our apathy. And so if you feel your apathy, which as, as a Christian, if, if you're awake, <laughs> if you have a pulse, you're going to be aware of your apathy. It's going to bother you. But the only solution to our apathy is to continually come to that grace of God again and again and again and again, because it's that grace upon grace upon grace given to us in Jesus, it's only that that can heal our apathy and wake us up to God's love. But God's not done with us yet. Look at verse 8. So I imagine that Isaiah is just awestruck, 
He's got his hand up to his mouth still after that burning coal touched his lips, and he's, he's just awestruck by the amazing grace and forgiveness of God. And then look at verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? With other prophets, God would basically say, hello, Jeremiah, hello, Moses, guess what? I'm sending you. You don't really have a choice about it. But in this case, God is looking for volunteers. He doesn't coerce. He doesn't command. He just simply says, who's going to go for me? Because there's a lot of people out there of unclean lips. There's a lot of people out there apathetic about God. In fact, in Isaiah's case, a whole nation it was headed towards disaster because of their apathy about God. And so God in His love says, who's going to go for me? And I can just imagine Isaiah kind of trembling, lifting his hand and saying, I'll go. Why did he go? Didn't he go because that's the only logical response to a God who showed him such grace and mercy? And isn't it the same for you and me? God's likely not going to call you to a prophetic ministry where you go out and preach on corners and get sawn in two, you know? probably not going to happen to you. But God has placed each and every one of you into homes, into neighborhoods, into workplaces, into schools, into this church. And having experienced the awe-inspiring grace of God, do you hear the voice? Who's going to go for me? You might go this way and this way. No. What about you? Isn't it true that we also raise our hand and say, here I am, God send me.